Today's Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by Origin Dollar. With inflation still over 6% and CeFi lending platforms going bankrupt, DeFi protocols that earn interest on stablecoins are once again back on crypto investors' minds. APYs on Aave, Compound and Curve are currently around 2%. By the time you pay gas to stake and unstake, it's a question of if it's even worth it for most people. If you want to earn yield on your stablecoins without needing to pay gas, check out Origin Protocol's Origin Dollar stablecoin. OUSD's average APY over the past 30 days is 5%, twice the rate you get lending directly on blue chip protocols. The best part is the boosted yield isn't from leverage or extra risk, it's from extra collateral and is rigorously audited. This is because smart contracts on Curve and other dApps don't support rebasing, so their collateral is working for you. The way Origin describes it, for every $1 of OUSD, there's more than $1 in DeFi working for you. Origin wants you to know as the collateral earns yield through these dApps, the protocol routes rewards to your wallet on a daily basis. Do nothing and your OUSD balance grows daily. If you want to put your stable coins to work, check out Origin Dollar's website. You can mint OUSD from the dApp or swap your stable coins for it on Uniswap to start earning today. For those holding ETH, Origin Protocol is teasing the release of OETH, which does everything OUSD does, but for Ether. It holds liquid staking derivatives to optimize yield. Follow along on Origin Protocol's Twitter and What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Barney Mannerings, founder of the Veda Protocol. Barney, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ash. Your first time on. We're, uh, we're thrilled to have you here. Great. I'm uh, really excited to be here today. You know, Barney, you and I were talking a little bit offline about your background in the traditional finance world. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the traditional finance space, your background, and what you did there. Yeah, sure. Um, I started my career um, as a computer scientist, really uh, went into kind of technology and, and management consulting in, in TradFi in London, uh, working with uh, investment banks and, and other sort of cap markets companies uh, on trading systems and stuff. I spent sort of two and a half years at that time working on the core matching engine and, and related stuff at the London Stock Exchange, uh, worked with a number of big sort of top tier investment banks, built trading systems. Um, yeah, just, just sort of did that stuff really uh, in, in traditional finance for nearly 15 years um, across different different projects and, and sort of spent a lot of time working with traders and, and building trading systems. You know, it's interesting, Barney, you and I started our careers in very similar ways, although you went much deeper than I did. Uh, I started out doing management consulting in IT, spent some time at some investment banks, Credit Suisse and others. Uh, talk a little bit about what you did uh, at LSE, because it sounds like you were very granular in building that exchange's matching engine. Talk a little bit about for folks who may not know what that means and why it's so critical in terms of the functionality required to trade stock. Sure. Um, so I, I started working on that project after you know, the first several releases of the matching engine were already live. Um, and, you know, matching engine is, is the sort of critical piece of the puzzle that connects buyers and sellers. And, and on a liquid market, on an order book based exchange, um, you basically, many times a second, you're taking in all of the updated orders from both sides. And you're basically looking for places where buyers and sellers are crossed, where they, someone wants to sell for a price that's lower than or equal to what someone wants to buy. Um, and you're trying to optimize for making you know, the most amount of trading happen at the fairest prices. Um, and so there's really sort of two things I did. One was work on some improvements that we were making to improve the latency, to reduce the latency, to allow uh, more and more transactions to be processed a second, to reduce the time from sending a transaction in to getting out the information about whether or not you made a trade. 
so we sort of brought that down, I think, from four milliseconds to sub one millisecond. And then the other thing that I was involved with was adding some new features to the exchange. We were looking to onboard sort of white labeling the software and onboard at different uh, products and different other exchanges around the world to the same platform. So we were looking at things like yield-based bond trading. We were looking at things like derivatives. We were looking at things like uh, constrained order books with um, minimum execution size orders. So I can say like, I want to trade a thousand. Marty, let's, un let's unpack some of these details for folks because not everyone uh, has yeah, a background yeah, sure. working uh, in traditional finance. So let's talk a little bit about the way these systems work, the way a limit order book works, the way that orders get uh, matched and executed. Because I think it's really critical for people to understand uh, the mechanics of what's happening behind the scenes uh, when they, for example, go up to their Robinhood account or their E-Trade account or their Chuck Schwab account uh, and enter an order uh, on a limit basis or at market. Let's talk a little bit about how that functionality works and how that crosses with what you were doing at LSE. Sure. Um, so when you enter uh, an order, what you're basically doing is adding your order to a big list of all the other orders. And okay. we have a thing in, in sort of TradFi in CLOB, Central Limit Order Book World, which we tend to, to sort of generally try to respect in terms of fairness, which is we call it price time priority. And what that basically means is that like, if I'm offering a better price than you, then I get priority over you. So if I'm willing to sell something for $100 and you're willing to sell it for $90, you're offering a better price to the market, so you get considered first. That means so highest bid, lowest offer. Exactly. That means that basically no one ever gets ripped off. Everyone always gets the, you know, the best price is what they, they get to trade with first. And then time priority means that if you come in before me and say I'm offering you know, $100 and I come in later, you get to trade first. So it effectively says that you know, whoever's there first gets the first bite. Um, there are other things that can play into it, but those are the key things. And so what you're really doing is you can pretty much just imagine these orders as a list or as a pile of post-it notes on, on a whiteboard or something. Right. You're kind of writing down the price and putting them in order and adding them and reshuffling them around so they're always kind of sorted. So you know, the, the buys that are the highest price and the sells that are the lowest price are kind of going to the top of the list. And then really what you're doing is you're taking the two things at the top and saying, can these trade together, right? So like if I have a buy that's priced at 100 and the best sell is 120, you can't make a trade because the buyer doesn't want to pay more than 100 and the seller doesn't want to pay less than 120. So in the middle is a gap and that's called the spread. So on a normal order book, when you look at it, there's always a spread because it means all of the things that can trade have traded. So now there's a gap between best buy and the best sell price as the bid and ask bid ask spread. And then effectively what happens is someone comes in with an order and says, oh, actually, I really want to buy this. This, this is all, all the memes in my Twitter thread, you know, Twitter feed uh, are just naming this thing and I've just got to have it now. So, you know, I'm going to put an order saying 130. And now what we're going to do is we're going to take that order and you know, say it's for a thousand, you know, thousand of the stock or of the coin or whatever it is. You're going to look at the first thing at the top of the list and say, okay, they're offering it 120. So we're going to match them. That's the matching of the matching engine. This 130 matches with that 120 and it takes, it executes, it takes the volume. And you'll hear the terms maker and taker, right? So the maker is the person who sat there on the order book saying, I'll sell for 120. And the taker is the person who's come in at 130 and said, I'll take your 120. Uh, but the interesting thing is, of course, the maker might only be offering 100. Of the, of the thing at 130, but you might have tried to buy a thousand. So once we've, once we've done that trade, we keep looking down the list. Is there anything else which I can trade with? Maybe there's another person at 130 offering another hundred, or maybe someone's offering a hundred at 125 and that can still match. So you basically keep applying that rule of like, are these things crossed? Do they match? Can they make a trade which both are happy with? 
until you've gone down and there's and you're back to a place where there's a spread again where they're not overlapping so now you're back to a situation where maybe i was only able to get 500 of my thousand so now i sit on the order book at, at 130 and the other side now has been eaten away all those all those uh, offers at 120 and at 125 have been eaten away by my 130 trading against them so now maybe the best offer is at 135 so you can see the price has moved up the spread has moved up the bid and ask has moved up my 130 is on the book the 135 up here is on the book they're no longer crossed and so now the market has moved you've made some trades the market's moved and the, the whole process just continues to repeat every time someone sends a transaction in they either add an order they delete an order or they reprice their orders to an amendment or something and, and so that's the process the matching engine does it does it you know like i said we were working at like one millisecond latency so thousand times a second things are now well below that into the microseconds and you know tens of thousands of times a second perhaps so you do this thing super rapidly taking into account all of that data from all the orders in the market and that's kind of how price formation happens on a limit order book and you know my job was effectively to improve that limit order book in, in a number of ways allowing different products to be added improving the speed improving certain other aspects of features that were available to users different order types and things like that Barney, I'm so glad you described it because I think it gives people a sense of where and how price discovery comes uh, about in a market. You talked about the depth of the market. You talked about all of these sort of critical ideas that you need to understand how, how a centralized limit order book works and how price discovery happens in the equity markets. I guess my question for you, Barney, is uh, why DeFi? What was it that got you interested in it? What got you excited about it? Obviously, you had a very lucrative career. You could have continued doing this for the next 25, 30 years if you wanted to. What was it about DeFi that made such a compelling uh, sort of case to you that made you want to come into this side of the industry? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, part of it is the sort of the type of person I am. I'm a technologist. I'm interested in innovation and building things and moving fast and, and moving things forward. And, you know, one of the interesting things about finance and TradFi is that doing that is like glacially slow. Like it's really hard to move things forward fast in, in finance because the size of the organizations, the amount of kind of uh, sort of regulatory capture they have, the amount of difficulty for new new entrants to come into the marketplace. Um, so I think, you know, a couple of things happened. One, I was interested in maybe starting something or being part of something smaller. Um, and when I met my, my co-founder Ramsey, you know, that was something that really resonated with me. But the other thing was that when Bitcoin turned up, I was sort of excited by that and started doing a bit of mining. Um, didn't really see myself working in Bitcoin. I mean, that's just an asset, right? Um, and then ended up investing in a very small amount into the pre-sale of Ethereum as well. And that was where I started to get excited because it was like this decentralization, if I can apply this not just to the assets, but actually to the protocols, if you like, the products, the things that people do with financial assets, then that's super interesting because all these things that I've been used to building and I've built in the past that have been incredibly closed off and only available to a select few and very slow right. moving, suddenly now that opens them up to everyone. And I think that's exciting to me because it's exciting to be able to build something for the future and something that's fairer, but it should be exciting to everyone because the amazing innovation that happens on the internet and happens because of technology happens because people who maybe don't have huge amounts of money and massive corporate backers and huge teams find something and like dig their claws into it and make something incredible, you know, even, um, every product that's really gone anywhere has started small It started with little innovations and i think finance has been missing that and to enable that and also create more fairness and openness 
on a kind of you know, global scale is something that's just always been very exciting. So you know, really this sort of crypto and DeFi really spoke to me in that way, enabling innovation, creating a sort of fairer marketplace and you know, frankly, working with traders and looking at the organizations they're in and seeing them charge tens or hundreds of times really the spread or the commission or the fee that would be justified by the cost of what they're doing to small businesses and individuals for, for accessing financial products and markets. When you see that, you eventually kind of get sick of it. You kind of think, you know, it would be nice to change this and make it so mm. that small businesses were not just handing money hand over fist to these organizations. And same with even you look at things like Visa and MasterCard and the fees they charge for payments. It's like, why do we put up with this? We have a tax on everything we buy. There must be a better way. And so I think, you know, feeling like that for a while after working in TradFi and then seeing the beginnings of a potential solution, which we're still figuring out how to make it work and how to fit it in with everything else in society, but seeing those beginnings and seeing the opportunity to get involved there and maybe build something with kind of real world utility was, uh, was what sort of dragged me across the fence. Right. So you were early to Bitcoin, early to Ethereum. You began to see this framework for where you could uh, see improvements happen uh, to the way that the financial services ecosystem works today. As you say, uh, it serves essentially as a tax on every transaction uh, that takes place over it above uh, the sort of equilibrium price of actually clearing them. Uh, you mentioned the DeFi space. When you surveyed it, when you looked out across it, what did you see that you thought needed to be fixed? What did you think uh, needed uh, to be improved? Uh, and why does the world essentially need another DeFi platform? I think is probably one of the questions uh, that people who are watching this show may have. Sure. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is actually when we started, I'm not sure if DeFi was even a term. It was kind of like, um, it was, there were a lot of nebulous concepts there. Um, we had DEXs just beginning. We had things like Ether Delta. Uh, many of these DEXs had like off-chain order books, on-chain settlement, which kind of not all that decentralized and some of them got in trouble for not being all that decentralized a little bit. Um, and so for the first thing is sort of things were not where they are now, but also I actually looked at the spot DEXs, you know, things like Ether Delta and thought, well, someone's going to figure this out soon and we'll have a really solid, you know, maybe hybrid order book based spot solution. And actually we sort of, we're halfway there because we have kind of things like Uniswap iterating towards eventually having something like an order book with B3. Um, but we maybe haven't made progress as fast as I would have expected then, uh, because we actually looked at that and said, yeah, everyone's going to figure this out. So you know, what's what, do you, the what do you see is currently, because Uniswap, you mentioned, is something that I think many of our uh, viewers and listeners are familiar with. What do you see the challenges being with the current state of Uniswap and their development roadmap moving forward mm -hmm. in terms of the opportunities you see? Yeah, and I think, look, there's, um, we talked a minute ago about price formation and how the order book enables that. And, yeah, so if you think of an order book, what it actually is, is it's a way of collecting all this information from the market and using it to form as efficiently as possible a view of the correct market prices. Now, the original Uniswap and other sort of CFMMs and bonding curves are sort of the opposite of that, which is to say you kind of collect almost no information up front and then let some extremely basic formula you know, evolve the price. And well, expected, can, you, can you explain that a little bit? Because I think people often get confused about understanding the difference of price formation uh, in a uh, centralized limit order book versus a liquidity pool. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how a liquidity pool works is instead of having all these orders, which represent real traders saying, I am willing to trade for this. And those orders on a limit order book, they move in price. So as information is revealed, both you know, through trading in the market, but through news and other things, people will reprice those orders. And so the what's available to you on the market changes as the market assimilates new information. 
When you have a, a Uniswap style curve, what you actually do is you just have these two pools. You have a pool of asset A and a pool of asset B. And the goal is basically to have a formula that says every time someone wants to buy something, work out how much of you know, asset A to take to give you some amount of asset B or vice versa. And the goal is like every time someone keeps buying one asset for the other, you keep giving less of the one they're buying and taking more of the other one. Right. So like, can, can you give an example of that? Cause I think it's hard for some people. Yeah, to so, yeah, if, if, if I have 10 ETH and 10 USD and you want to buy some ETH, if I just give you one price and never change it, then eventually all of the, all of the ETH will run out and there'll be none left. But if every time someone buys it, let's say a simple thing is every time someone wants to buy ETH for a US dollar, I halve the number of ETH I'm going to give them. So, you know, I give them five ETH and the next time I give them two and a half. Next time I give them half of that. If I always do that, I will never get to zero, right? I'll get to an infinitesimally small number, but I'll never get to zero. And that's basically the trick that these CFMMs play. The ratio between the, the size of the What's that is, acronym for people who may not know? Uh, constant function market maker. So they are just trying to sort of maintain the output of a mathematical function to be the same. Uh, and by doing that, they just allow that kind of thing, which is you can think of it like that halving of the amount they give you so they can never get to zero. It's a bit like ever heard of Zeno's paradox. If you always right. only make it half the way to the end of the race, you'll never finish the race. So if you always only ever give some percentage of what's left in the pool to someone, you know, the ratios of the pools will change, the prices will change, but you'll never run out, you know. And uh, of course, sir Pacey, um, uh, Zeno, that that does happen when you shoot an arrow across the room, it does manage to of course. Uh, <laughs> transition across a uh, an infinite amount of space in terms of infinite number of potential exactly. subdivisions yeah. in a finite amount of time. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that's kind of like sort of maybe gives a clue to the fact that actually applying this model is not really how prices evolve. What right. it is doing is it's giving the algorithm a way to never run out entirely of the assets. And effectively what happens is the price will evolve. And as long as you've got an, another market somewhere else, so let's say you have a centralized exchange or, or a DEX with an order book. As long as you've got another market to arbitrage against somewhere else, the price on the price on this incredibly naive function will eventually converge with the other market because people will arbitrage, right? They'll keep buying one or the other until the price offered is no longer attractive. And every time one moves, people will come and arbitrage it away, which means if you're a liquidity provider on there, you have this thing called impermanent loss, which is possibly not very well named, but it basically means all of the mispricing that's going on in that, uh, in that pool is basically occurring to you as an LP. So what you actually end up I doing- I think of unrealized loss as just a, you know, a way of saying, uh, so say, I mean, excuse me, uh, impermanent loss is just a way of saying unrealized loss or gain. Yeah, pretty much. And, it, and it's only sort of unrealized as long as you don't take your money out of the pool and realize it, because right. uh, the reality is that it's sort of there. Um, and, and the way that you deal with this actually um, is the way to change the price without that happening is to change the ratio of the pool. So effectively, if I put more of, the ratio between the assets in the pool, it gives you the price. So if there's 10 ETH in the pool and $100, then it's $10 an ETH because the, that's how that ratio would give you the price. So if you want, if you think the price in the pool is wrong, you can commit liquidity or you can take your other liquidity out and commit new liquidity to get the ratio to the price you think is right. So now, it's just a function of the ratio of what's been deposited. Exactly. And, and, and if you believe in either direction, up, you can deposit yeah. if you think it's... Yeah, and, and it doesn't give you this... Um, yeah, unlike an order book, which allows people to express different price levels, like I'm willing to buy this much at this price, this much at the other, it just has the ratio. If this if this pool was happening on a centralized exchange with one millisecond latency, right. what everyone who's a liquidity provider would be doing is rapidly updating their ratio to try right. and avoid arbitrages taking their 
taking them for a ride, basically, to try and reduce their impermanent loss, so, so to speak. So the ratio basically implies a price exactly, uh, on yeah, a liquidity yeah, exactly, pool. And exactly. Based on the ratio of the split, it implies a price, whereas on a limit order book, the price is stated explicitly. Uh, let me ask you this. This is just how I think about it. Maybe I think about it wrong, but I think about the the differences between uh, limit order books and liquidity pools is being driven by uh, an advantage uh, on the DeFi side and a disadvantage on the DeFi side. Uh, obviously, there's higher latency with uh, with these on-chain uh, liquidity pools, and so you can't enter and cancel orders as rapidly uh, as you could in a liquidity pool, but you do have the ability to um, essentially, in a decentralized way, commit to a liquidity pool uh, from a smart contract basis. So uh, the challenge with um, when, when you have uh, a, a limit order book, you're just expressing uh, essentially an indication of willingness to buy or sell at a given price point, but you're not actually uh, you're not actually hypothecating or isolating that asset, whereas you can do that under a smart contract. That's just the way I think about it, uh, how these sort of co-evolved in different directions. Yeah, sort of, sort of, I think. I mean, there, but there's nothing to stop, um, you know, a smart contract allowing people to commit the asset and to have those you know, order books and, and the limit order book, I think, you know, with with chains like Ethereum, that's probably too expensive to do. Right. Uh, but actually, another way to think of this, you know, in in the limit, as the as the chains get faster and cheaper, and as you get innovations like the ranged liquidity on Uniswap v3, you approach the same functionality as an order book. And when you end up, you know, our hypothesis is we will end up with on-chain order books and hybrid order books, where actually you can both commit sort of ranged algorithmic liquidity and direct orders depending on you know, your price sensitivity, how much liquidity you want to pay, what makes the most sense. Can you give us an I, example of that, Barney? Yeah, so the example would basically be, instead of thinking like, I either go to an order book or I go to an AMM, you just say, I can go to a thing that is both. And when I want to trade, it will just take the sort of average blended best price of both. So, you know, you can sort of imagine both having the order book liquidity and, and um, the AMM curve just being in the same sort of pool in the same trading venue and, and the trading venue, if you like, or the decks routing between those to give you the best price. The thing I think is really interesting about um, AMMs is that they're very useful in lower liquidity situations. So the mm. big downside of order books is that someone has to decide on the price, right? And someone has to run probably an algorithmic trading bot that takes in some data and decides the price and manages risk. And they need to maintain those parameters and check the risk and look after it. So maybe it costs $200,000 a year, maybe it costs more, maybe less, but you know, you're maintaining that you have a person sat at a desk doing it. If I just want to launch a pool and launch some you know, new meme coin and just have some liquidity there and let people trade, that's a big barrier to entry. And so actually one of the biggest um, pluses of things like Uniswap is the completely low barrier to entry. So I'm going to deploy this pool with some liquidity. And this is why I think hybrid is so interesting because you mm. will start off a new market will start off most likely as a pool with liquidity because no one needs to really sit there all day monitoring it, right? And so if it doesn't do lots of trading volume, it could still be profitable to launch that pool. Then as something becomes very big and well-traded and there becomes very liquid price formation, what you'll find is that the, you know, whether or not their LPs you know, adjusting Uniswap curves or placing orders, they're going to want to manage that actively to make the most money. And you see this on Uniswap V3. The best traders and LPs who make the most money constantly adjust their liquidity. But let's just say uh, for people who may not know, AMM is automated market maker, LP is liquidity provider. Uh, talk about the distinction between liquidity providers and traders as you see it uh, under the current DEX model. Yeah, sure. Um, liquidity providers are just a form of trader, I think, um, but but usually ones who maybe get rewarded for taking on that role. So, um, you know, 
market maker is literally just a sort of description of a trading strategy. So a market maker is someone whose trading strategy is to provide prices to people for them to take and to, to make the spread. So, you know, earlier we talked about that spread. We've got the kind of the best offer and the best bid. You know, someone's bidding 100, someone's offering 120. If people, if, you know, let's say retail traders come in, one retail trader buys for 120 off of the person offering at that, one retail trader sells for 100 to that other person, then someone has made 20 there because the, the sellers are selling for less than the buyers are buying. So everything you see on the order book is kind of inverted when you think of the, the flow, the retail trading coming in. So if you're a market maker, what you do is you make that spread and you make a profit doing that. Now, the LP, the liquidity provider role in, in DeFi is basically the idea that you formalize being kind of a market maker. And that's whether you're on one of these sort of AMMs like Uniswap or whether you're on an order book, you kind of formalize being, being a market maker and create the ability to commit liquidity somehow. Uh, and, you know, it works very differently on an order book based decks like Vega to how it works on an AMM decks like Uniswap. But the, the, the key thing is the same. You're committing liquidity, you're committing to enabling people to trade against you and to get offering that liquidity. And as a result, you're usually receiving some kind of benefit, maybe some revenue from the fees, maybe some tokens that the DEX is issuing or something like that. And so the goal there is to say, to have a good marketplace, you want market makers. So the protocol should incentivize people to offer their liquidity to the users on that DEX. And, and if it does that well, there will be good liquidity and people will want to use that platform. I want you to move on to some questions because we've got them coming in from our viewers right now. This is a really interesting question from Paul on the Real Vision website. Paul asks, is there any situation where a barrier to entry would be a positive thing? Interesting spin there. Uh, do barriers to entry serve any purpose in a marketplace in your view? Yeah, I think so. Um, firstly, um, if we look at the, the downsides of no barriers to entry, uh, it's very easy for anyone to create a token and to say, this is Chainlink's token or this is USDC, you know, in, in the smart contract in Ethereum. And actually it's not, it's a fraudulent token they just made up this morning. And mm. then it's pretty easy for them to go and deploy a Uniswap pool and then to send links to that pool around in Telegram and maybe collect some money from people who didn't check that actually this was all fraudulent. Now, Uniswap sort of ended up, yeah, has responded to all of that yeah, for a long time by um, sort of controlling how what they list on their front ends, doing a bunch of different things. But ultimately you have this sort of situation where you have no barrier to entry to create the market, no barrier to entry to creating the assets. And so now fraud is easier and customers have a difficult time. Uh, so I think actually, you know, in fact, we see that problem even worse because Vegas is a derivatives platform. Instead of being fraudulent assets, it's like fraudulent oracles. And if you think it's hard to investigate whether or not this addresses the right ERC20 token, wait till you try and investigate an oracle contract. So right. you know, on Vega, we've actually taken the approach of saying token holders have a governance role in curating that. So the barrier to entry is not technical. Anyone should be able to do it and it shouldn't be financial. The idea is you shouldn't need a lot of money if your proposal for a market is a good one, if you're doing something sensible. But actually there does need to be a curation role somewhere to try and avoid um, sort of fraud, to try and avoid some of the more disreputable things that make a marketplace difficult to trust. And the thing I'd say is I'm not sure whether having governance in the long term will be the right idea, whether it should be more open. I don't know whether there's a better way to curate this. Like we're trying with the governance to begin with because we really want to create something real world useful and avoid something that becomes a magnet for scams. Um, but right. you know, how the best way to do that is we, we thought we had to do something uh, to start off with, to give that little barrier to entry and keep the barrier to entry as small as possible, but to put something there to say, actually, it's not so easy that it becomes like, you know, Gmail spam where like, 
99 out of every 100 things on there are actually a scam. Marty, I really appreciate you coming on and discussing this mechanics of the way that DeFi functions in such great depth uh, and to give people an, an understanding of how you see the world uh, in terms of the future of DeFi. Incredibly interesting. Final moments we have left, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners and viewers with. Yeah, so key takeaways, are, you know, as we talked about, I think really good price formation and really uh, affordable and good quality on-chain trading is, is what will allow DeFi indexes to take on the same use cases as TradFi. And that's really you know, why we founded Vega was so that we could kind of go after those predatory tactics, those existing exchanges, we could reduce the fees, reduce the barriers to entry, and enable innovation. I think there's loads of really cool platforms coming on like next-gen blockchains, app chains like Vega, where I think in the next you know, year or two, we're going to start to see DeFi that's not just kind of a bit of a curiosity within the crypto world, but actually starting to address some real-world use cases. That's what super excites me uh, you know, about the launch that uh, we're in the process of right now in Vega, uh, and that's why we're here doing this. Hey, Barney, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You bring an incredible depth of experience to this, both on the TradFi side and on the DeFi side. Very much appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Ash. It's been great to be here. That's it for today. Remember to sign up for Real Vision Crypto. It's free. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. Join us again tomorrow when we have the founder of Socket Supply with us. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, or 5 p.m. in London. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great afternoon. Today's episode of the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing is in partnership with Origin Protocol's Origin Dollar. Put your stablecoins to work.